Welcome to the IP2 Podcast. Today we will break down last week's news and do a deep dive into Tier 2 events. But first, Felix, what have you been up to? Well, I just got home a couple days ago, so trying to recover from the time zone difference. But I did manage to play in an armory yesterday and one when I was away as well. Had a lot of fun, as always. How was the one when you were out? I love the armories in Moncton. Uh, it's Blitz right now, so I still get to, to play with my Prism. And uh, yeah, they have really strong players over there. Lost a close one against a Dromai in my last game there. And honestly, just amazing to be able to play Flesh and Blood wherever I, I travel. How about you? Yeah, I had a really busy weekend. Uh, a couple of weeks ago was my birthday and my wife planned... Uh, which you know a secret or a surprise party for me this weekend. We're big board gamers that we mentioned before. Had some friends travel 600 kilometers to come meet um, for a board game weekend. And we had, I don't know, I think up to 20 people at one point in the house chatting, playing board games. And everybody left today and now it's a recording session. And I'm, I'm pretty tired. It was a long weekend. It was a lot of fun. I did actually get to also go to an armory today um, where I went 1-2, um, but my win was a buy. So... Riptide struggled ah, today, but that's okay. Poor Riptide. <laughs> Is this CC or Blitz? It was CC. Mm. CC Riptide's still a bit of a tough nut to crack, eh? Yeah, I'm still working on my own jank right now. I wouldn't call it jank. I'm actually trying to make them good. Um, again, I like to try and prove to myself that cards are bad. Um, so nobody likes aim counters, so I'm trying to make aim counter Riptide work. And honestly, the games didn't feel that one-sided, I think. In one of my matchups against Azuri, I sideboarded the wrong cards, mm. and it would have made a big difference had I put in the proper um, traps instead of some other uh, cards that didn't work out. So I think, you know, with playing with him and learning how he works, I think I could maybe make something happen. I don't know if I'll ever win a RTN with him or anything like that, but... So this is exactly what I remember you saying about Prism and Icelander when they were spoiled and when they were quite raw. So I fully expect Riptide to be meta. You heard it here first because Shay <laughs> is working on it and he is brewing. The power level of the deck is going to grow exponentially week after week. Okay. And I'm not super confident about that, but I like it. We'll take it. Are you on a Sandscour or Death Dealer? No, I'm on Castaway right now. Castaway? Yeah. So it's a bit more blue centric so that i can pay for a buff to and then use riptide's ability to load and then use the other two to flip and fire the arrow with an aim counter mm. now i think if you look at the raw stats of an aim counter they're low for you know paying a resource and getting essentially a plus one buff is not very good return but it increases the value of that those cards and riptide struggles with going wide going tall so maybe this the aim counter can be a little bit more efficient and not have to use as many cards to present the same amount of damage okay well i i hope uh our listeners will stay tuned for every week the riptide update <laughs> I cannot wait personally to hear about the evolution of our new tier zero deck coming up here. Yeah. Only on the IP2 podcast. Let's, <laughs> let's jump into news right now. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Uh, so the banned and restricted, or the banned and suspended announcement. My apologies. They they changed yes. the name. It dropped a couple days ago. And well, short and simple summary here: no change to CC, and a couple living legend updates to Blitz, uh, with Oldham and Icelander leaving, but also. Drone of Brutality coming back into Blitz. And this is a card I have never had the chance to play with. But Shay, were you playing the game when Drone was still legal? Yes, I was. Um, very early um, in the North American history of Flesh and Blood. Drone was legal. There was uh, Ira Drone was a, was a deck that was top tier. And... It was mostly just armories at the time. We didn't really have major events that Im- that drone impacted. So while I was around, it wasn't wasn't a popular strategy. There also wasn't a lot of content out there for North Americans to take advantage of the drone um, lists. Where they, I think they were over in APAC, they were being used a lot more. So I would say for the most part, not really impacted by it. Okay. And you, I think, are a lot better at Blitz than I am historically. And to me, though, um, when I think about Drone now, it just seems a little bit slow to me in a pretty high-powered format where you don't have a lot of life. I guess, is that kind of what you feel as well about Drone? or Because I, I just see so much uh, people buying up like double play sets of Drone. People think it's going to be the best thing ever. I don't know if I'm just undervaluing it right now because I've never really seen it, or I guess what's what's your take on that? Yeah, it's I don't know why it's blowing up all over the internet like you mentioned, but I think the same thing. It, again, it's too slow. What is Drone going to do in a three-turn format? Um, your hero has to really revolve around that uh, long game plan, fatigue kind of strategy. Sure, it's doable. I guess if you want to just try and attack with drone every every turn so uh, there's going to be a merit i think it's there for the ability to do a fatigue style deck or a long uh game plan style deck it's just a it's a tool well i guess we'll uh we'll track the evolution of the blitz metagame here and see if we look like fools i don't know i feel moderately confident that drone <laughs> is not going to take over blitz but uh, yeah probably not been wrong before absolutely um, i guess it could shape the meta who knows yeah, um, I guess quick uh, fun fact: drone is a replacement effect um, because it says instead it is not a trigger that you can respond to. So I, I do have to ask you from a, a personal level: what is your favorite replacement effect in the game? You know, it was an interesting question when you posed it to me um, this evening, and I didn't really thought about replacement effects and their favorite ability. But kind of skimming through some of the cards. I really enjoy Best of the Soul, actually. I think it's a really, you know, I always like the alternatives to Tunic. Tunic is an overplayed card. It's it's hard to argue with its power. So you yep. see something like um, Vestige of Soul and what it can do. And it can do some ridiculous things. If you can get those sweet combo turns off, that can power a huge turn uh, as well as provide some additional power um, throughout the game. It's just unreliable. And I think that's why tunic is so so good as it's consistent you know exactly when you're going to get it you know exactly how you're going to use it so the replacement on effect on vestige is a little bit more varied but yeah i think that's what my answer would be how about you felix what do you think is your favorite 
So I have a couple. Mordred Tide is one that comes to mind because it's always my opponent on Viscerai that slams down a Mordred Tide and just comes in with like Revel for seven and there's read the runes making, I don't know, like another six. I don't know. It's it's crazy stuff going on there. So I, I have the most mental damage from Mordred Tide, but my my favorite is Flicker Wisp because it is a fun card that everyone forgets about, and I think mm-hmm. I opened like six of them in one box of uh of Tales of Aria. I'm not sure if it's good. I don't think it's good. Is it good? Flicker Wisp? No. Yeah. Uh, I love the card though. I was like yeah. I said earlier, I was a little disappointed that you chose Flicker Wisp as your favorite card because mm-hmm. I do have a little affinity with it. It did win my. Uh, top eight round in battle hardened i was able to fuse it and kill my opponent with two arcing damage at nice uh, with the flicker was so it's got a sweet spot in my heart so yeah that's awesome i guess fun fun fact also about vestige of soul is um i i was talking um last episode about how fractal replication was a rules nightmare for judges and you you might see a lot of judge exam questions about fractal replication or at least a quiz vestige when you combine it with things like talisman of recompense and other different effects can also probably make a judge quiz all on its own. So if anyone starts asking you very specific and detailed questions about message of soul, you might want to uh, be a little bit suspicious of that. (laughs) Let's uh, let's move on, I guess, sort of related to vestige of soul, but uh, let's talk a little bit about dusk till dawn. Now, this was technically spoiled over the Pro Tour weekend, so we're a little bit late. Nonetheless, Dust Till Dawn, we know a little bit, a little bit more about it now. We know that Prism is coming back in some capacity. We know there's a new Shadow Rune Blade coming. Uh, you are quite a, a Prism player, Shay. Are you excited about the prospect of Prism returning in a, a modified format? or a modified form without Luminaris with a different life total. Is that something you're going to be digging into right away? You think? Absolutely. I was um, surprised at how much I really enjoyed playing prison when she LL'd. She's been gone for a while. Dromai came out. It For me, it just didn't hit the same mark. Still a board state deck, but for some reason it's just, I don't know. Prism, prism felt really good. The control aspect and setting up a board state that took a lot of work and you took a lot of damage for and ultimately put your game in jeopardy for to become an uncontrollable monster. I really enjoyed that, I guess. So I'm excited to see what they did to make her fair and very interested because of the 16 life that she has for Blitz. Maybe she's got some arcane damage, a little bit of wizard in her. Who knows? Not speculating, but I don't know what would make her drop four life points in Blitz. That's a big percent. How about you? Are you excited about it? Well... played a bit of Prism. I, I, I'm playing a little bit of Prism now in, in Blitz, and now that I have, I do appreciate the playstyle. It is very unique. It is fun to have all of these instants and all of these tricks to keep your opponents guessing. I guess your ability to kind of rope-a-dope your opponent is very similar to the way I feel when I play Lexi. And you have these threats that you can choose to fire off now or later or keep in your back pocket. You have a lot of ways to trip up your opponent, which, which I enjoy. Um, I do hope that they can address her very polarized matchup spread, though, as someone that has lost to Prisms 
on a couple of streams as well, like very embarrassingly, <laughs> like 32 to 0 and all of that, as yeah. I was on Oldham. I, I'm i hoping that they can address that. Uh, <laughs> or else I can foresee myself uh, becoming victim to that quite a bit again. I lost to Adam. Uh, we were just practicing over webcam, 40 to nothing. I forget what I was playing. And I was like, that's ridiculous. That sh that shouldn't happen. That's not fair. Yeah. Um, that doesn't feel good. So I really do hope that they, they fix her. And yeah, I agree. Less polarized matchups would be a lot better. Quick note on Dust Till Dawn. They they are again pushing this narrative aspect, I've noticed. They're they're leaning into this war uh between uh the light and shadow. So Solana and the, the monastery, and they're saying that the entire set will focus on a pivotal twelve-hour time window from dusk till dawn, where the entire fate of the war remains in the balance. Does that kind of thing interest you? The the story tie-in and and all of that. It does. I like that. Well, when they originally announced that story was very important, then we had the lore book. So yeah, I really dig it. I wish to a little degree that it was a bit more consistent coherent as opposed to like i like that the set has a story but i you know in uprising and dynasty there was a bit of a story and i don't know how long of a story i want but i want more uh, longer story season with theme and characters and i don't know what other games do but i what flesh and blood is doing i really like i just want a bit more and you also need to do a better job of in taking the story that is being given to us because i haven't been very good at following um, the narrative that they're pushing but I, I, I do like it. I think it makes it a more complete game as opposed to just random cards being thrown at you. Everfest was a little weird because they mm -hmm. had already had a narrative prior to Everfest and then they chucked out Everfest. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. It's a carnival, but what's happening and why are we doing this thing? Um, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely really enjoy um, storylines. I remember fondly reading the Magic the Gathering novels as a kid, and they were really campy, not high literature, but I, I really enjoyed them. And uh, same thing for reading campaign source books for RPG games. Like, I, I love knowing the backstory of things, and it just adds a little bit of, of extra flavor and, and depth to to the pieces that, that we're playing with. So... Looking forward to it. I, I'm just always looking for a little bit more. Like you said, it seemed like there was a little bit of momentum with the Uprising Dynasty arc. We were getting some short stories about the progress of Fi's Rebellion and what Dromai was doing to scheme behind the scenes. And I remember there was a cool arc or the, the cool moment when we realized that the Emperor was dead mm -hmm. uh, up to the Dynasty release. That was quite cool. But yeah. then it, we seem to have lost a little bit of momentum from there, from an overall story perspective. But I might be missing something. I don't follow this as closely as, as some others might. And that's also some of my concern. Did, did I miss stuff? And that's why I feel mm -hmm. like there's a bit of a, a gap in it as well. I know LSS does a lot of like Easter egg stuff in their art. And it would be really cool to get a bit more information as opposed to trying to always find it and piece together and surmise what, what something might be. They use utilize the story arc to talk about somebody like in Dust Till Dawn, but in whatever set follows Dust Till Dawn, they release that hero that you were talking about. And you're like, oh, you get that excitement of like, yeah, that dude sounded awesome or he's super cool. And you can get that, get excited over a, um, something that's being released 
when it was art when you already knew about it people talk about the yarl all the time uh, because of the quotes when and if he ever gets released that's going to be a super hype moment and I, I like that stuff i think that's gonna be really interesting and a good way to keep people interested in the game I, yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, even something fun like Valda um, appearing in a couple of cards and then being released as a hero, just yeah. little tie-ins like that, that that show how they plan forward. I think that's cool. Yeah. Next topic is, well, a couple competitive seasons coming up here. There's RTNs coming up imminently, and national championships were announced for, I think, most countries... Um, I think there are a couple just TBD for national champions or national national championships, including the USA. Yeah, missing their venue or something. Yeah. For us in Canada, though, um, the date and location has been confirmed. So it looks like it'll be held back in, in Toronto again. I guess uh, for, for you, Shay, what are, you, what are your goals for the upcoming RTN and, and national championship season as a casually competitive player? The first one I'll be judging, the RTN locally here in Calgary. So that's my goal. I'm going to do my best to prepare for that. Uh, Refreshing rules, interactions, and dialing down into, well, we can talk about it later. Um, uh, And then there'll be a second one in our province up uh, in Edmonton in the Duke there. I'm going to attend and I haven't decided in what capacity. We were talking about it today at the Armory. Um, I might get in on experience. I'm doing okay on the 90 day. I don't know if the lifetime matters for... Nats, I don't think it does, but I'm, I think I'm 40th in Canada on the 90 day. So I might just get a natural invite there. So I don't know how hard I'm going to try for the RTN one, you know, who would like to win the gold foil, of course, but I also don't want to necessarily strip away somebody else's opportunity to get an invite to RTN if I already have one. And I don't know when that information is going to be released. If I'm going to play competitively, I'd like to start getting my reps in now and pick my hero and that stuff. So that's my current plan for it. Uh, what about you? I think similar to yourself and the whole XP qualification aspect does put us in a bit of a quandary because you and I, we do go to armory events at least once or, or twice a week, you know, really liking supporting our, our local stores and those events. So we do accrue a decent amount of XP, but when RTN season starts in earnest and some other places in Canada with potentially two events per weekend every weekend start piling up i kind of see our positions on the 90 day leaderboard just falling off a cliff because Mm -hmm. we only have the opportunity to play in two of those events that's that's my worry about counting getting in on on 90 day xp yeah um so so are you planning on getting an invite through uh play then i guess is that what i guess your your goal (laughs) plan but oh boy um that that, that's a great question um i i don't really know i i don't know if i want to apply for even judging nationals instead of of playing if there are leadership positions available um for example there it looks like there's going to be a pti event um there's going to be side events at the national championships um as well as the main event And typically for a larger event, each of those tasks, uh, so side event and the the PTI event, would have an associated head judge. Or uh, if those opportunities present themselves, 
maybe that would be something I would be interested in applying for. When it comes to local championships, though, I do want to put my best foot forward, um, both just to challenge myself, but also just to, you know, try to defend our turf. Um, you, you, I mean, Shay knows this very well, but uh, just that that regional rivalry that that we have with uh, with Edmonton is important to me. It is a, a motivating factor, and something like that will certainly motivate me to to try to at least knock a couple of them off uh, <laughs> of making top eight, or or if if I am lucky enough to make top eight to to knock them out. Um, that that's normally a motivator for me. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I would consider going to nationals if the opportunity arises for judging. I'm not comfortable in the idea of judging a, a major event in a room full of a bunch of people I don't know. It's already stressful enough doing a, a tier two event in a room of people I do know. You know, a small 40 person event. I'm always nervous. Don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to ruin somebody's event because of an incorrect judge call. So I can't imagine the, the stress and anxiety behind a room filled with hundreds of people or a hundred people and having to make a call that could potentially impact somebody's day. That's really understandable. And I know, Shay, you got into judging to serve the community uh, locally, right? And and mm-hmm. to facilitate that experience for your friends and, and the other members of your community. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. And there, there's nothing saying that in order to be a proper judge, you have to have such and such experience with larger events at all some of the best judges that i know are very focused uh just on on their their local communities and serving them the best that they can yeah well there's an expectation i think that goes with the competitive level that i don't have or maybe understand as well again referring to people coming from other competitive tcg backgrounds they have a set expectation of of judges and how they conduct themselves and what they're looking for and i'm worried that i don't necessarily meet the level of the expectation for competitive judges and I don't have the experience and I don't know what to expect. Um, we never really had that resource until, you know, recently the LSS has the judge program and they're starting to do seminars and stuff that I'd really like to find time to get in and listen to some of them and learn from these people that have hundreds of events experience and years of event experience. Have you been able to attend any of those um, seminars or events? Yeah, I, I absolutely have. And honestly, Shay, with all of the experience that you have with judging every single season in Calgary since the very first RTNs, you downplay your own skills and experience <laughs> a lot. You are more than qualified to give one of those presentations. Um, I don't know. Okay. But <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on then. Uh, this is a really good transition into our main topic for today, which is tier two events. Um, tier two events are a tier of events that include the RTNs that we've been talking about. So tournaments on a local level, I think a couple hundred of them worldwide each season. So it's not something as rare as a calling or battle hardened, but it's not as common as something like an armory. And before we really dive deep into this, I'm the disclaimer guy, so I'll just add a disclaimer. Any information that we are giving here or any suggestions that we are making is valid as of May of 2023. If our podcast is lucky enough to survive into next year and people are going through the back catalog, 
maybe there's something new and it looks completely different and there's different guidance, I would always encourage any prospective judges or players to seek the most most up-to-date resources and information available on Judge Hub, from the official website, from your local store or community. Uh, so before anything else, please just uh, keep in mind everything we're saying is temporal and, and subject to change. But Shay, why don't you uh, tell, tell us what exactly is a Tier 2 event? A Tier 2 event is the probably the first introduction into competitive rules level enforcement. So a mm-hmm. bit harsher in penalties for mistakes, mistriggers, uh, as well as one of the biggest things is the prizes that are being awarded and what's at stake for the event. It's not just promo items necessarily. It's, you know... PTI invites to major events, uh, exclusive um, cold foils, as well as nationals qualification. Yes. It's a big one for RTNs coming up. Yeah. That was what I was looking for. So what is competitive rules level enforcement? Well, like, like you said, it's a little bit harsher than the casual enforcement level uh, when it comes to things like, oops, I made a mistake. Can I take that back? Or even when it comes to fixing something like, hey, I draw, I drew too many cards. What do I do now? Um, however, it is not as harsh as the professional uh, rules enforcement level, which is something you would see at something like a pro tour. So this is a level of rules enforcement that is designed to balance the integrity of a competition with still educating everyone, making sure everyone's having fun. But just keeping in mind that we are playing for some stakes here, that there are prizes on the line. So yeah, the the competitive REL, I do like um, quite a lot. Uh, Before, we only had two rules enforcement levels, but uh, I I forget the exact date when the third one, the competitive REL, was introduced. I think it's been very appropriate for, for this level of tournament. Um, I don't think people should be afraid of of um, competitive REL though, and and playing for a judge or or playing under the supervision of a judge. I mean, I mean, is is playing or is having a judge present in an event something that you're used to? Again, coming from more of a board gaming background. No, it was it's very new. Um, I think I, again, I'm in a unique position to a lot of people in that I was the judge. So I had a different perspective being the judge before I ever became a player at an event that had a judge. So um, yeah, people shouldn't be scared or nervous. It's, it's the judge is there to help you. They're not, they're not there to punish people for mistakes. They're there for clarifications, pace of play, make sure that people are playing in a timely manner, you know, facilitate the game moving forward. That's what they're there for. And they do have a, a role to, maintain the integrity of the game if something else arises so people shouldn't be scared to be at an event with a judge let alone call a judge be comfortable in calling a judge and just if you have a question bring them over even if it's a simple question they're there to help help you understand what's happening and what's going on and you're not going to get punished you're not going to get kicked out for you know asking a question um i i like those questions the simple easy ones to help people move on and just be comfortable in the event the, the event itself is already nerve-wracking enough and then to have to call a judge about something again just keep talking about it creates more anxiety and i don't want people to have that um that feeling uh just to touch on something 
you mentioned the third rules enforcement level is actually professional. So I don't mean to correct you. Yes. It was originally casual and competitive, and then they added the professional one. So, yeah. Ah, you, you are a historian. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, and, and just to add to, to what you were saying there, um, I'm not used to playing for a judge either. Again, with my background being more in board games and... I was really nervous going into that first RTN in, in 2021. I remember once I drew too many cards because I I didn't arsenal a card, so I kept one, and I drew four new cards and then put them all into my hand, and oops, I had five cards in my mm-hmm. hand. Um, my opponent was a very experienced card game player, just instantly put his hand up and yelled judge. And at that moment, like, I... I was kind of freaking out inside. Like, was I going to get disqualified? Is everyone going to think I'm a cheater now? Like, all these thoughts go through your mind because I was not used to um, used to those calls being made. If this happened in an armory, we would have figured it out. It's like, oh, which one was the fifth card? Oh, okay, what do I do with that? But um, there's there there was a fix that I remember that that you gave that was. Uh, that was fair. I think I had to show my my hand to my opponent, and he picked one to put on the top or bottom of my deck. Ever since getting judge called, then I've I've learned this lesson. I always put my kept cards on my playmat, on the combat chain, so I always see how many cards I'm going to have in my my hand. So I have learned that lesson, and now I'm comfortable making judge calls, um, putting my hand up, asking for a call, or even when my opponent wants one as well. I know it's very normal for for an event like this. I'm just, as we're talking here, I'm just thinking that if, you know, players are listening and it is going to be, you know, one of your first events, go find your judge, talk to them, find out their name, introduce yourself, give them a little background of your experience and even maybe something that you're worried about or concerned about and create that rapport and find out, you know, how that judge is and you'll find them to probably be a super nice person and engaging. <laughs> So that would be a, like a, a recommendation of mine, I think. Yeah, one other thing that you can do as a player and also to help your judge, if you have a newer scene, if this is perhaps the first time your store has had a chance to host an RTN, is get used to making judge calls at your armories and just just clarify with your opponent, hey, there's an RTN coming up. Can you Do, do you mind if we pretend that this was at an RTN and if I have a question instead of you us two figuring it out we'll call a judge that would help the judge get some experience in taking calls it would also just get you more comfortable with the concept of of calling a judge so the next time you have a rules question in your game instead of saying oh okay we think it works like this let's just keep playing and maybe we'll figure it out after just put your hand up just ask hey so and so can you help me with a judge call here and whenever they have time in their game, or hopefully they've finished up, they can come and help you. They'll help them gain some confidence. If they need to look something up, then it'll get them used to using those tools that they have. And you'll get used to just uh, calling for help uh, whenever you need to. As a player, one of my favorite things to do uh, to a judge is ask them for time. Very simple. Nobody gets upset at it. I always also make sure that I, I talk to my opponent and say, hey, I'm going to call the judge over, ask about time. Do you mind? And it's very easy. It's not even a rules question. There's no right. There's no wrong. There's nothing to stress over. So Shay, what are some other tips that you can 
give to players as a judge for how they can make their first experience successful going to one of these tournaments? Something as simple as bringing a printed deck list. Um, that way you don't have to worry about your writing skills. It's printed, it's all legible. Uh, you can do the math to make sure that you have the you know, 80 cards for your deck list because uh, making last minute changes and scribbling stuff out on the piece of paper is probably not a good thing for you or your deck list regis registration. You don't want there to be any mistakes or any confusion. You know, something as simple as set realistic expectations. How much preparation have you done gone into this? Are you doing four hours a night, hard testing, uh, writing down all of your matchups and learning everything? Or you just kind of played in armories and gone, yeah, I hope I do good. And if that is what you're doing, maybe don't set winning the tournament as an expectation. Set a, a simple goal. And even on the side of that, not performance related, set a task that may be something that you're not very good at. Like uh, you mentioned tunic triggers when we were talking about this before the, the podcast. Try and hit every single tunic trigger all day and make that a goal uh, and see if you can remember that because in high pressure situations, it's difficult to look at all of the things that are in front of you. Flesh and blood can be a very complicated game state. In an event like an RTN, you don't want to propose the question to your opponent of, can I have my tunic trigger? Because um, that puts them in an awkward situation. It puts you in an awkward situation. They look like a bad guy if they say no. And just, you know, if you miss it, it is what it is. Try and remember and move forward from that. You know, just enjoy the day. Take in the moments that you're not playing and hovering over a shoulder of a friend, watching them maybe play out a match and maybe win a really tight one or talk to some people that are new visiting from out of town, get to know people, just take in the day so that it's more than just match after match, win or lose after win or lose. Do you have anything to add to that? No, that's all fantastic advice. And and really, these these tournaments are special, especially for scenes like ours. In Calgary, it's it's hard for us to travel to all of these callings and battle hardens that are two time zones away on the eastern part of, of the US and, and all of that. So so we we try our best to make these tournaments special and and a great experience for everyone. I think just from less of a high-minded perspective, because Shay, you covered a, a ton of good stuff there. Just, um, yeah, make sure your deck list is in order. Having the printed list also stops you from making bad decisions the morning of, like making last-minute changes to your deck. It never goes well. Um, well, maybe not never, but it very rarely goes well tinkering with your deck the morning of a tournament. Uh, so if, if you just bring, bring the deck list, print it off, make a couple copies um for backup and just hand it in it's a big stress off your day and gets rid of that temptation definitely check your deck box make sure there's no extra copies of cards floating in there make sure that all your sleeves are good that you don't have any cards that are marked or damaged one thing that can stress out people that have never been deck checked before is being deck checked and you the, the last thing you want is for you know, it's a horrible thing for a judge to discover that a player has been playing with a, a marked card or a player has been playing with 82 cards accidentally and you can't prove that they haven't been using all of them. Stuff like that, just just make sure everything's in order. Don't Don't put yourself in that position or the judge in that position either. 
I think that that's just the the last advice that I would have. Nice. Yeah. That's like the more player centric and this is a judge podcast. So I guess we should probably talk about how do we prepare as judges, right? Are we a judge podcast? I don't know, are we? I think so. IP we're, we're judges po- and and casually competitive players. Sure. But as a judge, what do you do to prepare for an event such as a tier two event or even a tier three, three event? Well, first of all, I think um, the basics take care of yourself. So make sure you have water, you have snacks. And if I need a break, because being a judge involves a lot of walking. In, in my opinion, to, to do your job properly as a judge, you should be there. You shouldn't be sitting behind a desk somewhere just waiting for someone to do something you should be observing you should be watching you should be letting everyone know that you're there because people will be more likely to just grab you for a question if you're right there versus if you're sitting behind a desk halfway across the store but at the same time you need to make sure you set aside time for your own breaks to have some water to get off your feet for a couple minutes so just the fundamentals of um of taking care of yourself. The the second key uh, before I go into more of the technical stuff is to make sure that you talk with the tournament organizer slash the game store that's running your event. And just to be very clear about your expectations uh, for what you're expected to do. It's like, hey, if, if, um, if someone asks about something to do with the store, it's like, hey, how much is this? Or can I buy that? Who do I go to? Who's who's going to be my buddy from the store side that that I can throw all those questions to? You can also ask, am I expected to be the scorekeeper or will someone from the store be available to help with that? So you want to take care of all of that stuff in advance. You, you, you don't want to be learning midway through the event when there's a million things going on that, hey, you should have been running gem this whole time as well. I guess before we go into the nitty gritty, Shay, is there anything else about just preparation and establishing those conversations with the the TO? I just have one little one and it's a hard one for some people and it's your compensation as a judge. What is the store providing you? You should be compensated for your time there, I think. Just, you know, it might be a chocolate bar if you're okay with that or it might be tens of dollars an hour. It's up to you to decide what your time is worth to the store and your relationship with them and go from there. But it, it should be something that should happen. You shouldn't just expect that, oh, I'm going to get a $50 for the day or I'm going to get a box of sealed product for there. You need to, again, set those those expectations with them. And they're not going to, you know, they're not going to get mad at you or they're not going to dump you as your, your judge for it. Um, but yeah, just be confident in what you think your time is worth. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. And it does say typically in the retailer FAQ for each event that the judge promos provided, um, which LSS gives the stores for free or for the cost of shipping, as I understand it, um, that is not a replacement for compensation. Um, That is a gift uh, to the judge or the judge team from LSS uh, to those individuals. Um, whatever additional compensation but between the judge team and, and the store should be discussed uh, beforehand. Going back to the technical nitty-gritty side of it, uh, just to practice all the basics. So from a comprehensive rules perspective, to understand the meta that you're likely to see 
and just to understand what the questions that typically accompany those heroes would come up. So if it's going to be an illusionist meta, I'm just going to make sure I really understand Phantasm, I understand all the different auras. Or if I'm expecting a warrior kind of meta, I would expect myself to be very well drilled on stack resolution, on paying costs, all of that. Um, and and be prepared for all of those edge cases that you might see as well, uh, as well as the latest uh, errata bulletins and all of that. And on top of that, from a policy perspective, be very, very, very familiar with the fixes for common mistakes. Uh, so every tournament you're going to see, oops, I accidentally drew too many cards, my sleeves stuck together, or you made the same mistake as I made in the first RTN and forgot about the cards you had stranded and you drew four more cards. So the fixes to those are very prescriptive in the policy. So you should be able to just uh, hammer through those. Um, one thing that I'd like to tell new judges is policy is your friend. It gives you a backstop. Um, because if players don't like a ruling or why, why is this trigger missed? They can't blame the judge. They can blame policy if they want, but they can't blame you for just enforcing what's on paper. So really use use the policy as your guidebook. You do have the discretion to, to make deviations as the head judge, but um, when you do that, you start putting yourself at, at risk. This is a, a pretty complicated topic, certainly be a well, well beyond the scope of, of this conversation, but. I think the key message is just to be very familiar with uh, with the policy as it relates to those very common situations that, that you're going to run into, miss triggers, drawing extra cards, minor game rules violations, and and all of that. I guess, Shay, do you, do you generally agree, or, or are there anything else that you would add to that? No, you are covering it very well and in-depth. Sometimes we do get stumped, though, and, and Shay, when someone asks you something and it stumps you, I guess, what's your go-to? So me personally, I have a laptop powered in somewhere, yep. and when I part of my preparation for the morning is to find a good table with some space and power, load up my laptop, and I open up those discords, the uh, rules and policy pages. I have a page for the release notes. Control F is one of your best friends if you're using a keyboard so that you can bring up the find in page and just type in the keyword that you're looking for. So miss trigger or replacement effect, whatever it might be, or even a key key card that you're not familiar with because somebody's playing something a little bit deviant from the meta so that you can quickly find that resource, read it and figure out the appropriate fix or how a certain ruling works. Um, so that's one of the uh, one of the things that I do so that I can make quick, timely calls on the day of. Yeah, that that's fantastic. And as a judge, you're not expected to know everything at the drop of a hat. You have all the resources of the internet available to you. So take the time to get the call right. There's no pressure to just make a ruling on the spot. Yeah, no, and that's a good point. Take the time. Um, you will feel like you're under pressure because the clock is ticking down. But you as the judge, you have the ability to have a conversation with the TO and be like, this table needs five, 10 minutes, whatever it is, because you took the time to make the correct ruling. And that's okay. Just delays the, delays the day a little bit, but you really want to make sure that you get that rule right. Exactly. And 
frankly, there's always going to be one slowest table. And if you have 20 tables and you spend five minutes with the table, hopefully it's an aggro mirror. <laughs> You know, hopefully it's <laughs> yeah. it's not going to extend the time anyway. But even if it did, yeah. you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't matter. It's yeah. yeah, it's okay. I guess just just to go back and we're we're just going to step away from uh, I guess how to prepare as a judge. But you mentioned just enjoying the moment, um, and and this is applicable to the players, but also to the judges. Um, and in in fact, I remember judging my first RTN. I was incredibly stressed out, like cheering for everyone simultaneously from Calgary in the room to to win their games, <laughs> which uh, like just in enjoying every second of it while also mm-hmm. being very stressed. Yeah, um, we we do treat these events as special events in our community in Calgary. Uh, there's always something going on after at one of the local pubs or the Denny's if it's gone on for, for too long. We, we, we really try to make the most of it from a community perspective just to, to celebrate everything. And no, Shay, you're, you're really big on that. I was pretty reluctant to, to start going to these uh, social events afterwards uh, for quite a while, but uh, you've, you've, you've been a big proponent of that for, yeah. for a long time. Yeah, one of the things for me is uh, the event is the excuse and the people are the reason. Community is important to both of us. And one of the easiest ways to create a tighter community and help it grow and expand, bring in new players is to go out for dinner, go out for beers, whatever people are comfortable with, and reminisce of the day that just went by and just talk and get to know people. You don't even have to just talk about flesh and blood. If you're flesh and blood out, get to know people on a personal level. If you want the people that are going out are going to be the people that want to join the community and grow and have conversations. And the people that don't want to be a part of it, they're just going to go. So you don't have to worry about people that are, you know, reluctant to talk or maybe really upset at their performance of the day. They'll probably go away because they're not having a good day. And, and, it gives everybody an opportunity, again, to sit around a table and chit-chat and celebrate milestones, wins, losses, whatever, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's one of the best ways of cultivating that relationship with other people and growing the community. Yeah, and you mentioned keeping track of, of everyone's wins and losses and successes. This it, it sounds a little bit hokey, but building the lore of a community... I think is important just keeping track of the storylines, the heroes, the villains who just got screwed by a run of bad luck or who ran super hot. And those kind of storylines, I think, are really important to to local scenes like ours. And these tier two events, again, give us an excuse to to say, hey, that's that's that player over there. They're always on the bubble. I wonder if that's going to happen to them again. Or man, did you remember the run that that player had? They went undefeated in Swiss, but then had the worst luck in quarterfinals and felt so bad for them. And yep. can they rebound for the next turn? Like all those kinds of stories I'm a huge sucker for. And I do my best to remember each player's personal storylines coming out of those tier two events. And just, just try to sprinkle them in, in in conversation when I see them again in armories or if they're having a bit of a bad day or e- even, you know, if if it 
comes up in the next tier two event these these events are so awesome for for that exact reason and that that's a huge reason why i get so excited whenever it's rtn or, or pq season around here yeah you you mentioned the watching somebody's i guess results and i think it's isaiah started out at in a skirmish at 10th and then the next skirmish he made ninth and then he actually made top eight in the following skirmish and it's a really cool trend to watch him grow and find more and more success and it hurt every time that he you know he bubbled out but you know it's a cool story arc to see a person finally achieve that goal of top eight we were talking we mentioned earlier about wins and losses and villains and heroes and felix isn't talking about literal i won a game i lost a game could have been i'm a combo deck and i got to do my combo one time today Mm -hmm. i didn't win but it did the thing that i wanted to do and that's a success and the villains aren't the mean people in the room. They're just maybe somebody that you have a rivalry with that you always lose to in top eight or whatever that is. They can still be a good person. Absolutely true there. Uh, I, I do know that there's some some people that have some cursed matchups or really bad matchups into individuals specifically. I think Sam actually said he he has a bad matchup into Adam, like our, our Adam. <laughs> <laughs> oh so, really yeah that's funny just that that kind of thing um yeah so yeah i'm i'm a big sucker for storylines at the end of the day and and you you know armories happen so frequently and they're awesome but you you don't you usually don't get too much of a storyline from them but but there's a little bit of stakes on the line there's a top cut there's single elimination bracket at the end you you can get some very memorable stories coming out of them and absolutely love that I think that about wraps up our main topic. I guess any closing thoughts, Shay? I mean, this is a topic we're both very passionate about. I feel like we could talk for hours on on this. Yes, absolutely. Um, Just one thing for me personally, and it's not true to everybody, is to have fun. Again, they're competitive events. I understand that. But my goal is to have, it is a hobby, and it's to have fun. Whether I'm judging, whether I'm playing, uh, enjoy the day, take in those moments, make those friendships. How about you? Couldn't agree more perfectly said well let's uh let's move into our our random topic for the day our fluff our fluff yeah and (laughs) shay i keep on bugging you about this um shay is uh, very special um very unique you would say (laughs) among adults uh in that he has or he's part of a functional regularly meeting dungeons and dragons group that meets weekly um and I, I trust that most adults listening to this podcast, if they try to set up a D&D campaign, then it lasts for about three weeks before people start saying, oops, I have an appointment. Oops, my kid's sick. Oops, I have, I need to <laughs> yeah. wash my hair. <laughs> and all Whatever these other excuses. excuse. But, yeah. uh, or maybe this is just me and everyone's trying to ignore me. But, uh, Shay, you have to let me know. First of all, tell me about your D&D campaign. And at some point, I'm going to ask you about your secret about how you get multiple adults with jobs together once a week at a set <laughs> time to play this game consistently. Yeah, the current Dungeons & Dragons group, uh, we started with uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist. And we concluded that campaign and we moved into the the follow-up campaign of uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage. We just made it to Skullport in Undermountain. 
and we have a bunch of quests that we need to finish off there and it was a long way long and arduous process that it should have been i think it took us like i don't know eight sessions to get from Waterdeep to skullport because we're video gamers and no floor can go uh, less than 100 percent explored before moving to the following level Oh, you're you're those kinds of video gamers. I I typically <laughs> am a minimum completion kind of gamer. Oh, are <laughs> because you? Of my impatience. <laughs> oh, not I, not because I'm funny. speed running. I, most people I know just are like, "Yep, I got a quest over here. This map piece is unexplored. I have to go under, mm. go over here." It's like saving potions for the 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 right health battle or right boss battle. Mm-hmm. All right. So so are you a player or are you a DM? In this campaign, I am a player. I started the group as the dungeon master, um, and it became apparent after a year and a half that I could not keep devoting the amount of time that I needed to set up the campaign on a weekly basis. So one of my friends took on the difficult process to be the dungeon master for our group. And we are not the easiest group to dungeon master. We're a bunch of passive players who can't make decisions, and he has to ask us, ask us 50 times in a session be like so what are you guys doing yeah the 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 dm nightmare the players expect uh matthew mercer <laughs> and all they do is stare at you waiting for you to yeah. monologue <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah no that, that's good and, and what what class do you play are you like a, a frontline leader or caster or... um as i would consider myself the voice of the group a lot of the time um, just on a, on a personal note, you know, there's always a group leader. Uh, a lot of my friends are very quiet, reserved people. So somebody has to be the starter uh, of a lot of initiator of conversations right. and events. And so I specifically took a role <laughs> that uh, was not that. So I, my character for this campaign is a Kenku soul knife rogue. Originally when I, you know, looked into the idea of Kenku. They they have the mimic feet. So a lot of people think that you can't talk, and that's not true. Kenku, a Kenku can talk. They're just mimicking words that they've heard before. So as a, a fun little thing, I downloaded a couple of audio programs, and I would play sound bites as my mimic pieces. I get mm. a good chuckle out of um, playing those. And I, I've stopped that because I didn't want to make it like overbearing and obnoxious of hitting all these sound bites for, you know, two years. Yeah, imagine if I had a soundboard, I would be really obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is. I would play like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger quotes or, um, yeah, it's not a Tuma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. No, that's that's awesome. Um, and, well, you, you never told me your secret, again, to, to maintaining this group and not having it fall apart when everyone flakes out. I mean, is there any special sauce or... That you said you were going to ask me in a later episode, but that's fine. Um, it honestly, it comes down to commitment. I, 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 it sounds dumb, but the people in the group have to be committed to the idea of the time that you set to play on a weekly basis or whatever schedule basis. That that's actually important. That not that the commitment. It's actually that that commitment is important and trumps. Uh, all of the other things that's on their schedule that they're doing on a day-to-day basis, whether it be laundry or their hair, like you mentioned that, and the group that I play with, I feel like those people have made that commitment or that 
that that commitment is that important that we all meet. Sometimes people are late. That's okay. Um, but we've also been a group of friends for since like grade one in elementary school. So I think that's an unfair advantage to a lot of D&D groups that are um, picked up from a, a message board or off of a piece of paper on a cork board in a co-op. Uh, so we have a relationship and their time is important to me. And I don't want to discredit that they sat down at a desk because uh, we play online at that time. And so it's important to me to, to honor that and respect that that's their time. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I am disappointed that the answer apparently is nepotism and not uh, <laughs> not anything else. <laughs> so, sorry to disappoint. All right. No, thanks a lot for sharing that, Shay. And yeah. I think that wraps up our episode for today here. I think so. Um, as usual, thank you for joining us on the IP2 Podcast. You can follow us on our socials at IP2 Podcast on YouTube and Twitter, IP2 Podcast at Wraith.social on Mastodon. Update for each set. Uh, I'm drawing a blank is what it's called right now. Uh, the release notes?